Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. Okay, so where do you want to start? So why don't we start in March? Back in March, there was this shooting in Atlanta. I think we all remember it. It was completely horrifying. Police in Georgia are investigating a series of deadly shootings that took place in the Atlanta area. Eight people were killed. Authorities say many of them were women of Asian descent. Now, police have arrested one man who is white, but they haven't said anything about a motive yet. This guy, he went to three different spas, Asian-owned spas in Atlanta. He shot eight people. Six of them were Asian women. And... One of the things that happened was that there was this press conference. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We'll start off with sheriff runs from Cherokee County. The police were talking about the investigation and the fact that they've been getting a lot of questions about, you know, was this a hate crime? Many, we've received a number of calls about, is this a hate crime? We are still early in this investigation. Uh, So we cannot make that determination at this moment. The detectives involved in this case were not coming out and calling it a hate crime. And that was upsetting a lot of people. But I think what really set people off was when the spokesman said that the shooter told detectives that he shot these people not because of racial hatred, but because he was struggling with sex addiction. The chief said this is still early, but he does claim that it was not racially motivated he apparently has an issue, uh, what he considers a, a, a sex addiction, and sees these locations. How do people respond to that? Something that allows I think some people thought maybe the police department was, you know, giving credence to this claim. And also the idea that it was a sex addiction just seems so ludicrous on its face. Now, prosecutors in the case did eventually bring hate crimes charges against the shooter. But this shooting was part of a pattern we've seen for the past year of increased violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Tonight, the FBI is stepping up its efforts to counter the shocking surge in attacks on Asian Americans. Hate crimes against Asian Americans in major U.S. cities surged by nearly 150 percent. A 36-year-old Asian American father beaten by a stranger last Friday. And in response to all of this, Grace Meng, a congresswoman from New York, and Maisie Harino, a senator from Hawaii, two Asian-American lawmakers put forth this bill called the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. And it was going to increase resources to the police so they can do more outreach to communities that don't speak English. And they also wanted the Justice Department to gather more data on hate crimes connected to COVID-19. But then I heard something a bit surprising, which is that a group of Asian-American and Pacific Islanders and, you know, social justice groups and LGBTQ groups, 85 of them in all, 
signed a letter opposing this hate crimes bill. Why did they oppose it? Well, they opposed it because they said that the COVID-19 hate crimes bill wasn't going to keep people safe. And I guess I was surprised to see all these groups that represent Asian American groups, LGBTQ groups in one way or another, groups that are very often the victims of hate crimes, saying that this law that's aimed at maybe preventing hate crimes just isn't going to cut it, just isn't going to do it. And I wanted to know more about why that was. This week, correspondent Tracy Hunt investigates the origin of hate crimes legislation in our country. What changes when we call an act of violence a hate crime? Who does it protect? And makes the case that maybe we've been thinking about how to police hate all wrong. I'm Julia Longoria. This is The Experiment. What is a hate crime? Well, a hate crime is a crime that is committed with a motivation or at least a partial motivation of hate or bias. Jamie Floyd is WNYC's senior editor for Race and Justice. So you have to have the underlying offense, which is, you know, an assault or a battery, attempted murder or even a murder. But then you have to have that added motivational element, uh, hate, bias, and it has to be intended or, or even expressed. These laws vary from state to state and on the federal level, but they often mean tougher sentences for crimes committed against protected groups. Assault someone, get five years. Assault someone because they're trans, get 10. And the prosecutor has to prove that element. The actual term hate crime won't come into wide use until the 1980s, but crimes motivated by hatred have been with us since the founding, and we've tried to use laws to stop them since Reconstruction. So we all know about the Constitution. We like to talk about the Constitution. We like to talk about the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, which are the Reconstruction Amendments. But we also know, especially as Black people, you know, the Constitution's one thing, but then actually living and breathing the spirit of the Constitution is a whole other thing. After the Civil War, legislators tried to write a new vision into the Constitution of a multiracial democracy where Black people could vote, hold office, and serve on juries. Resistance was instantaneous. Local and state government officials used violence and threats to deny Black people these rights. And the KKK began a campaign of terror. Black people were being dragged from their homes, beaten, and killed. So President Grant called on Congress to pass more legislation, starting with the Enforcement Acts. And these prohibited the states from disenfranchising voters on account of race, color, previous condition of servitude. The first two of 1870 and 1871 were directed at government officials who used violence to deny Black people their civil rights. The Third Enforcement Act focused squarely on the Klan. Members of the Ku Klux Klan would be penalized if they terrorize Black citizens for exercising their right to vote, running for public office, serving on juries. And that's what this 
series of legislation was all about. And then they had to go in and enforce the legislation because nobody was listening down there. And that's what the Department of Justice was set up to do. One of the first jobs of the newly created Justice Department was cracking down on the Klan. And it worked. Hundreds of Klan members were arrested and imprisoned. Some of them even faced majority Black juries. The Klan was stamped out, at least for the time being. After Grant left office, there was a backlash in the North against Reconstruction and a recession that made paying for a military occupation in the South much, much harder. It's estimated there was a lynching a week. Protecting Black people in the South just wasn't a priority in Washington anymore. And it wouldn't be again until the Civil Rights era. We had the Civil Rights Act of 1964. We had the Voting Rights Act of 1965. (laughs) And then when Congress saw that these were not enough, and, and all these killings continued to happen down South around the Civil Rights Movement, So they realized we need another act to protect against the actual criminal activity unleashed against people who are trying to fight for their civil rights. There was one case in particular that showed the federal government they can intervene in these kinds of cases. The 1964 murders of civil rights workers Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner, and James Cheney in Mississippi. Local officials refused to prosecute the case. But after a national outcry, the Department of Justice stepped in. They charged 18 people under provisions from the Klan Enforcement Act of 1870. Stopping racial terror was back on the agenda of the federal government. In 1968, we get the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, but Tracy, we also get the first federal hate crimes legislation in this country, 18 U.S.C. 245. What did that law in 1968 say? It said that the federal government will have the right to prosecute these murders as civil rights violations. If if, uh, hateful acts of murder and other violent acts are perpetrated against individuals and local authorities do not either properly prosecute, you know, half-heartedly prosecute with all white juries who are predisposed against conviction, Uh, or they don't prosecute at all, no one has ever brought before uh, a judge and jury, then federal authorities will have the right to prosecute for civil rights violations, violation of the civil rights of these victims. And so we kind of have these, like, moments where hate crimes become, there's, like, I guess a national imperative to fight hate crimes. We had that moment post-Reconstruction. We had that moment again in the 1960s. So it's interesting because when I was growing up and I was watching like a lot of cable TV and, you know, cable news and things like that, I just remember all of a sudden people were talking about hate crimes a lot more sometime in the 90s. And that's why it kind of feels like such a 90s phenomenon to me. So what was it about the 90s that made hate crimes a, a topic of conversation and another thing that we had to handle somehow? In 1998, Tracy, there were two horrific crimes that happened that really captured the nation's attention and the national consciousness. Uh, James Byrd, an African-American man, was murdered in Jasper, Texas by white supremacists. They kidnapped him. They beat him. They tied him to the back of a pickup truck and dragged him for three miles 
before he was decapitated. It was a modern era lynching. Now, just a few months later, Matthew Shepard, a 21-year-old student at the University of Wyoming, was brutally attacked. He was tied to a fence in a field outside of Laramie, Wyoming, and left to die. That was October 1998. Now, why? He was gay. And he died a few days later in a hospital. I think, Tracy, in the aftermath of these two events, there was this real awakening to crime committed with hateful intent. This afternoon, I signed into law the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. Nearly 10 years after their murders, Congress passed the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. Among other things, it added protections for sexual orientation, gender identity, and disability. And it expanded the reach of federal prosecutors. At this point, you're probably noticing a pattern. Societal progress followed by violent backlash, followed by laws hoping to minimize and prevent that backlash. And repeat. We now have several federal hate crime laws. And 47 states, plus D.C. and Puerto Rico, have their own hate crime laws. But that doesn't mean hate crimes have gone away. Most of the problems have to do with the fact that police departments are not set up really well to track hate crimes. They're not focused on them. Janine Bell is a Richard S. Melvin Professor of Law at Indiana University Marist School of Law. She's been studying hate crimes for more than 20 years and thinking about ways to make them more effective. The best way to get police departments to take hate crimes seriously is to create bias units, create units of police officers who are just focused on hate crime. That is the most effective mechanism for getting law enforcement officers to take this violence seriously. But... How do we know that the officers who work for the bias unit are also not biased or also not members of white supremacist groups or also not just straight up racist? I think I have a hard time trusting police departments to take this seriously. Well, I've studied this. Yeah. I wrote a book on this, right? Belle has actually written two books on the subject. She's considered an expert on how police investigate hate crimes. For one of her books... Belle spent five months inside the bias unit of a big city police department, though she wouldn't say which one. I was inside a bias unit. And though there was one officer that I wouldn't have wanted to investigate a hate crime that I was victimized by, um, the vast majority of the officers would have been just fine. And I describe in the book the process of investigating these crimes converts law enforcement officers from ordinary officers to victims' advocates. Part of the reason Bell says hate crime laws are needed is because they might be the only ways to prosecute certain kinds of terror. You know, say someone uh, burns across my lawn. Let's take a garden variety hate crime. If it wasn't for hate crime law, that wouldn't be prosecuted at all. 
absent a hate crimes law, somebody burning a cross on your lawn, isn't that vandalism? Isn't that arson? It's not arson if there's not any damage. And frequently with cross burning, turns out there's not. Vandalism, well, the person who you have to have injured property, right? And the perpetrator is the one that has property damage, right? Because it's their own wood that was damaged in the cross burning. So, no. If you don't have hate crime legislation, the police are not going to go out to a vandalism on your property. No. No way. Right? Police don't investigate 80% of low-level crime anyway. For me, it always seemed like a hate crime charge was like something that a prosecutor sprinkled on. <laughs> like it was just like almost like symbolic. You're wrong about that because communities need more. I mean, imagine you being targeted. Yeah. You're beaten up. A bunch of nasty slurs are directed at you while you're being beaten up. The injuries aren't particularly serious, but you've just been selected off the street because of your race. So every time you go out, you think about, oh my God, is there going to be another one of these freaks that picks me out like this? This is an additional injury. That's what hate crime law recognizes. The additional injury, the additional vulnerability, the additional harm that's caused in the context of the bias-motivated assault. I can't imagine what actually being the victim of a hate crime is like. As a Black woman in the U.S., I've certainly been called names, but I've never been physically attacked because of my race or come home to find the N-word scrawled on my front door. But when something like that does happen to someone who looks like me, I do feel that vulnerability, that worry that despite record-low crime rates, some freak is going to pick me out. But... Naming a problem is different than solving it. After the break, why hate crimes are on the rise. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com listener and get started. This is The Experiment, a show about our unfinished country. I'm Tracy Hunt. 
We've been trying to solve the problem of racist violence in this country for more than 150 years. And yet hate crimes rose to their highest level in almost a decade in 2019. So how do hate crime laws actually work? I took this question to WNYC Senior Editor for Race and Justice, Jamie Floyd. I become a public defender because I want to essentially represent black and brown people who are being railroaded by the system. Before Jamie was a journalist, she was a public defense attorney in the Bay Area. I want to make sure they're getting vigorous representation. And what do I get? I get this client who is a white man accused of assaulting violently a black woman and calling her the N-word in the process. A few years after California passed its own hate crime legislation, Jamie found herself defending a white man against hate crime charges. He walks up to this woman in the park, doesn't know her, and he pops her in the face and calls her the N-word. No provocation at all. They're not even having an altercation. And that's my case. Did you feel conflicted as a Black woman defending a white guy who had assaulted a Black woman? I didn't like it. Uh, But when you decide to become a public defender, you decide those issues before you walk into the job. This seemed like an open and shut case, but Jamie says she felt there were some complications here. In this particular case, I seriously felt this man had a mental health issue. And that's often the case with hate. Why did you think he had a mental health issue? Well, I interviewed him. I had him evaluated. And I saw him again. I saw him again. So I think I was right in that assessment. She eventually secured a plea deal for her client that included mental health services. The curious thing for me, and this goes back to the racism of our society, is why do so many people who have mental health issues latch on to racial hatred? Why? Why do so many people who are going to engage in a mass shooting, which is clearly a break from any sort of sane behavior, why do they latch on to hate? I don't know the answer to this question either, but I do know that racism in this country is systemic. It's practically in the water. Hate crime laws focus on the individual, and you can't fix systemic racism by punishing individual acts of hate. This is part of the reason to be skeptical of how much hate crime laws can really do. And Jamie says there are other reasons, too. Number one, I think hate crimes are very problematic because of the First Amendment issue. I mean, I'm really now just speaking as sort of an academician, intellectually, are we prosecuting words? Are we prosecuting thought? This question of whether hate crime laws violate the free speech rights of defendants has been tested in court. And the big case on this is Wisconsin versus Mitchell. By the way, here's the interesting fact. The case involved a group of black men, black men and boys who had just seen the movie Mississippi Burning, getting us back right to the 1960s. Mississippi Burning is a 1988 film loosely based on the murders of James Cheney, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman, the three civil rights workers whose murders inspired the first ever federal hate crime bill. They saw the movie, they were angry about what they'd seen, and they attacked a white boy. As this young white boy walked past them, witnesses said one of the men, Todd Mitchell, said, y'all want to fuck somebody up? There goes a white boy. Go get him. The group ran up to the boy, beat him severely, and stole his shoes. He was in a coma for four days. 
The jury found Mitchell guilty of aggravated assault, which normally carries a sentence of two years. But because the jury also found that he had selected the victim based on his race, his sentence was increased to four years. Mitchell sought to overturn the conviction, arguing that his speech during the assault was protected under the First Amendment. That's the case that goes to the U.S. Supreme Court. These Black young men and boys had said a bunch of hateful things about white people. And in the case, then Chief Justice Rehnquist says, well, that would be protected. The problem was when they acted and beat up pretty badly this white boy. And Rehnquist gives an example, religious leaders who preach against homosexuality, that's not a hate crime. They cannot be charged with a hate crime, even though the speech may be highly offensive. It may even be hateful. As long as the preacher does not urge violence, the speech is protected and not criminal. And that's the seminal case, Wisconsin versus Mitchell. I just don't really agree. Jamie says she questions the constitutionality of the decision. Well, to be clear, it is constitutional because the Supreme Court has said it's constitutional, and that's the way our system works, but I don't agree with them. (laughs) It's constitutional, but you have a different opinion. What's your opinion about its constitutionality? (laughs) I think that those boys who beat up that young white boy certainly should have been prosecuted, should have done their time, but not for hate crime. They should have done their time for assault and battery, maybe even attempted murder if it rose to that. I just don't like the enhancement. I just don't like the enhancement. I don't like prosecuting words just because they're the words that I, this week, don't like. I just think it's speech, and speech is protected. The action is not protected. Here's the thing that I think is also sloppy about the way that we do hate crimes. Saida Grundy is an assistant professor of sociology, African-American studies, and women's and gender studies at Boston University. She wrote about hate crimes for The Atlantic. So if you're a prosecutor and you're giving jury instructions, or excuse me, a judge would give jury instructions, you're like, okay, you can convict on these counts. And for this count, we have to prove that there was assault, there was battery. Okay, that's easy. All the evidence seems to be there. And then also, jury you're going to have to take into account this second separate count, which is an add-on. It's an add-on statute. And that is about proving the mental state and motivation of this crime. And that's where it begins to fall apart. Because you're asking a jury to get inside of someone's head. I think people think about hate crimes with this sort of historical imagination about like anti-lynching bills. Like, oh, we're trying to make something prosecutable. We're trying to criminalize something that people otherwise get away with. And that's not what hate crimes do at all. As a legal apparatus, they are superfluous add-ons. And what they really do is just extend the reach of the carceral state. We're already draconian. Our country already punishes more than any other country in the world. If you murder someone, we already have a criminal code for murder. Tacking five years on to what would already be a life sentence or a death sentence Is that really doing anything to rectify what violence happened? Is that really doing anything to heal the community that was injured by that? I think that's a lot of my interest in it. Yeah, I think that's, it's really interesting because it feels like it's an emotional reaction, you know, and I don't want to say that in a way that makes it seem like that's not important, like your emotional reactions aren't important because they are obviously. And it is devastating to think about this person 
would not have been shot to death if not for the fact that they were a person of color or a trans person yes, or et yes. cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we want that recognized and we need it codified some way. Yes. And it's sort of easy to say, let's punish it. The harder job would be, let's actually talk about resource redistribution that would make these communities less vulnerable, right? Well, going back to that thing, like, what does it do emotionally? It gives people the false expectation that their legislators are doing something for marginalized communities. What could a hate crime do? Let's talk about what could hate crimes do. Hate crimes could say, if this is a hate crime, then there has to be a a form of reparation for that community, right? If this is a hate crime, then we need to look at what made this community more vulnerable. So if it's the employment status of, you know, Asian women, let's look at policies that are going to make them less vulnerable. Let's look at, you know, the resources in terms of health, education. We're in the middle of a damn pandemic, right? Let's look at things that could actually make this community, give them resources in which they could one, protect themselves, and two, just wouldn't be so vulnerable to crime to begin with. To the East Room of the White House, where President Biden is about to sign a COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act into law. Let's watch. My message to all of those of you who are hurting is we see you. And the Congress has said we see you. And we are committed to stop the hatred and the bias. Unlike previous hate crimes legislation, the new COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act isn't adding new enhancements to sentencing or anything like that. It instead aims to give police more resources so they can increase public outreach and ensure victims can get resources in multiple languages. It also directs the Justice Department to collect more data about hate crimes connected to COVID-19. It's just not a sufficient response. This is Jason Wu. His organization, Gapimni, empowering queer and trans Asian Pacific Islanders, was one of 85 groups that spoke out against the bill, saying it doesn't support Asian American communities, but instead directs more resources to the police. This legislation, it doesn't actually do the thing that we're saying it's supposed to do, which is to prevent harm and violence. A hate crimes designation doesn't stop a hate crime. It doesn't stop anti-Asian attacks. The things that we really need to address inequality and social problems requires investment. And the way to do that is by reallocation of funding. The hate crimes legislation, it doesn't do any of that. It doesn't address inequality. It doesn't address the social problems that underpin the attacks. It doesn't address the conditions that give rise to violence. And for me, the violence and attacks that we're seeing go so much deeper than, you know, the individual who is engaging in, quote unquote, exceptional racist violence. For me, it's systemic and it's deeply cultural, the dehumanization of Asian Americans, Asian American women, um, people who are elderly immigrants, And I think we should hold someone like Donald Trump just as accountable as the person who strikes another person, you know, walking down the street because they think they're carriers of COVID. But that's never going to happen, right? I, I think one thing about this that's really tricky is that these are crimes that are committed against marginalized communities. 
when someone is attacked that way, it reverberates throughout a community because now you have like an entire community that's afraid and they feel vulnerable. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. There is something especially pernicious about being targeted based on your identity. And, and that is something as an Asian American person, as a queer person, I'm very sensitive to. Like I've grown up, you know, being very aware of like my identity and the vulnerabilities associated with that. Um, I think part of what you're getting at is a question around what is justice and what does accountability look like? While I've been thinking about this question and reaching out and talking to all these people, I kept thinking about this one crime that's always haunted me. It happened in February 2017, right at the beginning of the Trump administration, when it felt like the political rhetoric in this country was creating conditions for violence. And this one murder just felt like the beginning of a new era. So did you meet your husband in the United States? (laughs) <laughs> it's it's kind of uh, I've told it many times and it I always blush yeah anytime I have to say it. Sanana Dumala still smiles and blushes whenever she thinks about meeting Srinivas Kuchibola. They were introduced online through a mutual friend when Sanana was researching graduate programs in the United States. I think that's what makes me blush. I think the way we met, the way we liked each other and without even personally meeting each other. What was it like when you finally did meet him in person for the first time? When I saw him for the first time and I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy is too tall. <laughs> I'm just five foot. Okay. He was six two. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a big difference. <laughs> Sanaina and Srinivas got married in October 2012. They moved to Olathe, a suburb of Kansas City, in 2014, when Srinivas got his job as a software developer at Garmin. They bought their first house. So that was a big thing for us. We chose everything in that house. They made friends with their neighbors. So life was going... Until February 22nd, 2017. I mean, it was supposed to be a normal day. Uh, normal day, we were supposed to come back home, have a dinner, just go on with our routine life. Tanina was waiting for him at home when she saw a Facebook post about a shooting at Austin's, a bar she knew Srinivas liked to go to. Sanina tried not to panic. And so I was praying and I was trying to make myself give the assurance that um, hopefully he wasn't there. But every time she called, his phone went straight to voicemail. There was something in me that trying to tell me, no, 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 don't think, don't think that way. Nothing should have happened to him. Nothing would have happened to him. A few minutes later, the cops knocked on the door. And the rest is what everybody knows. Srinivas was at Austin's grabbing an after-work drink with a co-worker who's also an immigrant from India. That's when a 51-year-old white man approached them yelling racial slurs and asking about their immigration status. Then he opened fire. Srinivas was shot and killed. He was 32. His friend and a bystander who tried to intervene were also shot. They survived. 
The shooter pled guilty to murder and hate crime charges. Did you feel that you got justice? I mean, I think him being convicted, yes, that does give some level of comfort that uh, the right thing is being done. Was that important to you, that it wasn't just that he was convicted for Srinu's murder, but also that he had this this additional thing attached to it? Yeah. Yeah. Can you, can you tell me, like, why that was important? What did it signify for you? It helps you in understanding, like, why this person murdered the ex-person, right? If it would just see it as a murder, like, you don't, you will not, how will we able to understand, like, where we need to work upon? It's interesting because I think um, some people look at hate crimes legislation and they say that these sorts of charges, they don't do anything to keep marginalized communities safe. What would you say to that idea of that just, you know, convicting this person of a hate crime or calling what happened in Atlanta a hate crime it, at the end of the day doesn't really do anything to keep anyone safe? I, I think that is necessary from an administrative standpoint. But at a grassroots level, I think we all have to step up. As much as it is necessary to have a crime classified as a hate crime and being dealt as a hate crime, it should not stop us from coming out of our own cocoons and getting involved with the community. And that is what I am trying to do with my foundation. Sanaina created Forever Welcome in 2019. It aims to create empathy for people who have immigrated to the United States by sharing their experiences through storytelling. I want to create a medium where we can have this free community dialogue where everybody gets the opportunity to to bridge their gaps and uh, are more open to talk and open to learn. Would Shunivas still be alive if there were more or better or different hate crime laws? Or if we had more resources going into communities supporting those without jobs or those having mental health struggles? Probably not. Violence motivated by racial hatred is a problem we've been trying to solve in this country for more than 150 years. And that's because the U.S. didn't begin as a multiracial democracy. It's had to reverse engineer one writing laws and changing the Constitution to give more groups of people their rights. But when some disagree with this progress, they turn to violence and intimidation to stop it. And when things go wrong, a pandemic, a war, crime, terrorism, the economy, there's always someone to blame. Which is why it seems like hate crime laws are more of an attempt to name a problem, but not solve it. So now that we've named it, What do we do next? It's not like a one-stop solution. The the divisiveness that is currently in the society, this will take a long time. And I think we'll have to be patient and we'll have to have that perseverance to not stop our efforts. How did the community in Kansas City react to the murder? Do you remember like what kind of support you got from the community after it happened? So the very first time when the cops came and told me what happened and then that um, Srinu couldn't survive, my instant thought in my head was that 
I'm going. I'm living. I am leaving this place and I'm going back. Because for me, Srinu was my everything here. And uh, in my head was like, what is left for me here to be here? Mm-hmm. The community as such was very supportive. Like the way his employer, Garmin, the way they came forward to lend their support. There were little, little things that uh, show you the good in the community. The local hotels gave free accommodation to our friends that flew from outside of Kansas. The funeral homes usually don't allow to take the body outside of the funeral home, but they accommodated our request and allowed Srinu to be sent to our home so that he can have his final goodbye from his home. And so I think it is because of all of that support. It is, it is because of all of that outpour of love that I got my uh, answer of the question that I asked. Do we belong? All of these that helped me in finding that answer that yes, I do. This is my home and I very much belong here. This episode was produced by me, Tracy Hunt, with help from Gabrielle Burbay. Editing by Catherine Wells, Emily Botine, and Jamie Floyd. Special thanks to Kai Wright and Verilyn Williams. Fact check by William Brennan. Sound design by Hannes Brown, mixed by David Herman. Music by Tasty Morsels and Nelson Nance, with additional music by Joe Plord and Hannes Brown. Our team also includes Julia Longoria and Natalia Ramirez. You can find Saida Grundy's article on hate crimes for the Atlantic at theatlantic.com backslash the experiment. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Experiment is a co-production of The Atlantic and WNYC Studios. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com listener and get started.